Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Director of Cybersecurity Advisory Services here at Cyber Theory. Today's episode is going to explore website and application code integrity. And with me to explore that topic is Rui Ribeiro, the CEO and founder of JScrambler, a bootstrap global business that now serves over 43,000 customers worldwide from Lisbon, Portugal who specializes in code security. Rui has led JScrambler since 2014 from a pure bootstrapped operation to a growing business serving those 43,000 plus the Fortune 500. And that completely amazes me, Rui. So I, I am, uh, I'm overwhelmed with that accomplishment. So uh, fantastic, congratulations to you and, and welcome to the show. And thanks for joining me today. And thank you for having me, and um, and thank you for uh, this introduction. Uh, we're really happy to be here. Yeah, I'll bet you are. <laughs> your top-line messaging in your marketing material says you can protect applications against abuse and privacy and tampering and code theft, and you use enterprise-grade obfuscation and code locks and other self-defense techniques. It also says you can do something similar for websites against web supply chain attacks and online fraud by, I guess, detecting and controlling client-side behaviors. Can you explain to our audience exactly how you do that and describe the similarities between application and websites within this context? Of course, of course. So let me start by the last question that you put. So most web and mobile applications today are using JavaScript because companies want to have a single code base, lower cost of development, shorter time to market and provide an omni-channel experience to their users. So that this means that when I open a web application on a browser or on an iPhone or on, a, on an Android, I have a very similar experience, if not the same experience. And so when we are talking about applications and website, we are basically talking about all mobile or browser apps that use web technologies. For us, it's no different if the technology that they are using is the same. We are able to address the security concerns of these applications. But if you look at it, a web application is basically built using two big parts. The first one which is the app that the owner of the application builds itself, the first-party code. And the second part, which is the code that he brings in from third parties, which are we are going to call third-party code. And so companies must make sure that they're able to protect not only their own code, but also every piece of JavaScript that they add to their web application. because every one of these sources can be a potential security problem. So they must verify that it's not tampering with forms or leaking the user data. So we are entering the realm of um, supply chain attacks. You, you previously mentioned also the term mage card. It's also part of that class. And this happened because on average, a web application or a website is running 66 
different external JavaScript components. Wow. It's a huge number. And the problem is that each time you embed a third party, they basically all have the same privileges. So they can do whatever they want to the web page. I'm simplifying, but let, let me try and give you an example to make this more real. So imagine that you're logging in to your bank account. On the right side, you have the login form of the login form. And on the left side, you have a video player that is promoting the new credit card that the bank is, is starting to announce. So that video player has no, no known vulnerabilities, no, no CVEs. It is an external component, of course, because the bank is focused on developing its own features. It's not going to develop a video player. And by logic, while it is on the login page, it shouldn't access the login or password data. Okay? I think this is the context. But if that video player has a configuration error, it might start accessing the password of everyone that is trying to log in into the bank's web page. <laughs> but if you look at it, why? Why would a video player start to access the login and password information? Because that same video player, if it's used by a media company, he must first check login and password before playing any content. Sure. So it's the context. The context is incredibly important from so the same component. If it's in a media company, there's no security problem. If it's in on, on a bank's web page, can become a security risk. So going into the context, like why is this important? Maybe they could push the, the problem is with the provider of the video player. This has changed. So a lot has changed in terms of the responsibility of the data. And all the industries from banking to e-commerce and, and media, all of them always understood this, but now with the new norms like GDPR, CCPA, and all the different counterparts all over the, the world, it is clear that they are responsible for any data breach, be it from them directly, through a problem that they created, or from any third party that they bring in to the application itself. So we have the context of, okay, we build websites using a lot of third parties. These third parties have a lot of access that they shouldn't have, and there is a big liability risk. And that's where we started. So we wanted to build a simple and effective solution that dealt with these processes, with, with these problems. And we go about it because we want to secure and monitor every JavaScript that's running on a web page. So all the JavaScript, first and third party. By doing that, we are helping the companies protect their users from attacks, which is what is more relevant and more mediatic, from fraud, from harmful third parties, but also from simple problems that occur from misconfiguration and errors like the one that I shared with you, the video player on the banking website accessing login and, and password. Yeah. So, you know, on the supply chain side, as you've said, you, you monitor JavaScript and can identify all that corrupt code. Then do you block those instance, instances where you find them and then eradicate them? Or how, how does your product work Similarly, on the client-side applications, and is that in play whether you're desktop or mobile, or do you care? 
we care, but but we can cover all of them. So, but it's interesting that you started by talking about corrupt code. But we have found that most of the times the problems is not just corrupt code or attacks. So let, let me try and go back to another example. A web application is, is built by multiple teams. For example, we have the marketing department and the marketing department uses tag managers that allow them to add external third-party JavaScript on the fly. <laughs> right. You're already, you're already feeling <laughs> the problem coming. Yeah, yeah, sure. So if the marketing department wants to install a new tracking tool that's fantastic and that will really help them make a lot of money on the next Black Friday event, they can do it at the click of a button. But what the marketing team didn't know was that that JavaScript that they added to the page is also bringing in a big security risk because it can access and does access the email of every single user on that website. Amazing. And, and that's why the, the, it's a big, big security risk, which is uh, almost impossible to predict when you, you are starting to build a web application. It's only when it is at the execution level that it makes sense. So in fact, so no code was corrupt. Nothing was changed to the, to the source code of that e-commerce website, but all of a the sudden they have a very big security problem. And that security problem cannot be verified by looking at the origin of the code because that it came from that tag manager. So in some contexts, it, it could be a pre-approved uh, source or the identity of the vendor that is being added to the, to the website. Because although the identity is valid and uh, comes from a trustable company, it can create that uh, security problem just because of running in that context, they cannot access the, that type of data. And so we focus a lot, it's on the behavior of the code. What does it do with the user data? And you ask specifically, like, how does the blocking happening and how does the eradication process happen? So trying to do it in a nutshell. So we monitor the client-side code and we monitor every user session. So all users that are engaging on that website, we are seeing what the, the, every code is doing and we detect any malicious behavior and stop it, okay? So we inventory all the JavaScript modules. That's the first step that are running on the client side, of course. We identify what they are doing and if there are implications for their users. Knowing that, so having that information, we can enforce policies that allow certain scripts to do to have um, uh, one level of access and others not to have that same level of access. Go going back again to the example of the video player, we will allow it to play video, but we won't allow it to access form data. Right. Okay. And that combined with the fact that we are able to protect also the first part of party code. All of these strategies together create a very resilient web application that is able to provide a secure experience to the end user. So ah. monitoring and stopping the attacks at the origin. Yeah, that's great. Two words, polymorphic obfuscation. <laughs> if we have 100 people listening to us right now, 99 of them don't know what that means. Could you explain the nature of polymorphic obfuscation kind of how it works and how Jay Scrambler deals with it? Okay. 
I can try. Yeah, <laughs> so try, the, try. The objective of obfuscation is to raise the bar to the point of where the attack becomes unprofitable. So it's look at it like an economic problem. If it takes too much time and uses too much resources, I won't do it. And polymorphism is um, in obfuscation means that we are able to protect the same code and generate at each protection totally different versions of that code that achieve the same goal, okay, but go through it in a different process and look totally different and are in fact totally different. But why do that? Why have 1 million versions of the same code? Because then you have 1 million problems that an attacker has to solve. <laughs> so again, it's about raising the bar in terms of, um, of, of security. You're because making it more difficult for the bad guys, right? Yeah. And this is very important for automated abuse. So things like bots. So PlayStation 5 was nearly impossible to buy for a long time because we had scalper bots that were constantly buying all the stock and then reselling it at a very high price on, on the secondary market. If you look at it like with polymorphic obfuscation, we could slow down those bots just because every time they try to per do that purchase, they would be looking at a different code base and they wouldn't be able to automate that process because the context would be totally different. It's not that simple. I'm oversimplifying. But the idea here is the idea is we provide multiple problems and so we avoid the automated abuse of, uh, of applications. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. But you know, a couple of million uh, versions is not going to make a difference to a bot who can probably solve that problem in sub-second response time. Do you have any prognosis about how 5G is going to impact that process? 5G is about network connectivity. It's, you'll have, I'm not a bot detection company, but for them, it's a bigger problem because they will have, not because of 5G, but because of IPVCs, they, they, IPv6, they have a lot more IPs that they need to trust or not trust. But I don't expect 5G to be an increasing problem for, for these companies and for this process of uh, bot detection. Yeah, but it's sure going to mess with the networks. That's, that's, that's oh, yeah. No more bandwidth, more bandwidth, more people, more data. Yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. an increasing problem. That's, that, that's for sure. No kidding. You've had success in the, uh, operational technology markets as well, the, you know, OT space or IoT space. Are there customer success stories there that our audience might relate to? We have had a lot of success in OTT markets, which is related to video players, so media companies. That, that's where we have been uh, had a lot of traction. So media companies in commerce and banking, those are like the places where we have had mo most traction. And in the case of OTT, so media companies, I think that the biggest change that we have seen is that previously we consumed the media in set-top boxes, in the living room, and now we are able to consume media everywhere. But they still have the same security requirements <laughs> for their applications. And that's where we come in. So we have helped the companies protect their OTT applications, and we enable them to be competitive when... And, and provide a, a secure streaming experience in any in any environment on the mobile, on the computer, on the browser, in any of those situations. Yeah, if you stay in that 
media swim lane, what are the next challenges you're you're going to have to address to continue to be competitive? Media is a, it's always complex because um, they are constantly evolving. We want to consume content that is unique, that is immediate. There, it's more and more about the accessibility, being able to decide what you want to watch now, other than what it was before, like when you had like pre-packaged content that you'd sell for years and years, like for example, a film. Today, it's about sports, it's about live events, where media companies will have to focus to, to differentiate themselves. Yeah, sure. Tell me about competitors. There must You must have a bunch. But you're in a leadership position. I mean, I don't, you've accomplished that, which is amazing. What can your customers kind of look forward to in the future from you guys? We have a goal. We want to provide a very simple solution to a very complex security problem. And um, the need is there. So finance, e-commerce, they need to protect their user data. They need to improve their compliance. And companies are already, already struggling with implementing a good user experience. So we want to take the security problem from them and we want to help them in that part. So an e-commerce website, it has lots of services that have been bundled into that experience. So payment processors, analytic tools, help desk systems, advertising, marketing, marketing tools, shipping, whatever. And they must all work together. All these models must work together. Most of the, the companies, they are not as conscious as they should be on the risks of bringing in all these third parties. And even the third-party security is not on par with most of the e-commerce or banking companies. And so we have found that example that I was uh, that I was telling you. So a third-party company that all of a sudden starts to access a user email and capturing user data, and we want to stop that. So we want to work with the e-commerce companies, the banking companies, so that they can be agile be more competitive, so allowing them to use those third parties without having a concern that it might compromise their user data, be faster, of course, sell more if it's an e-commerce company, but above all, avoiding all those compliance risks. We don't want to be a security company that blocks our customers from moving forward. We want to enable them to move forward. We are not going to say, don't use third parties. What we are going to say is, we have a system that allows you to use third parties and move forward and still have a very high security stance. Yeah, great. Final question here, and I'm conscious of the time. I don't know, notwithstanding the recent crash in the cryptocurrency markets, it's still incredibly popular. And, and you know, as a result, it you know, continues to expand the threat landscape pretty dramatically. Do you manage anything in that world? And how does that impact your scrambling? So crypto is always a complex, uh, a very complex topic because for me, most people don't understand the implications of crypto, but trust it and put money in crypto. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so, and one of the main security problems that it, it's clear for me is that 
when you do transaction in crypto, it's done. Money moves from one entity to another, and most of the time it's not reversible. And it is anonymous also in many, in many of those situations. So it is an ideal candidate for fraud. And they are aware of it, and the companies that deal with crypto are aware of it, and they try to ensure an extremely high level of security in their apps. And we help uh, in those situations because you engage with the app either when you do access information or when you access in your crypto wallet information or when you make a transaction. And that's why tooling like ours is incredibly important also for the crypto industry. But it is, as you said, it's growing so fast and it is a very high, high benefit target. Like high, uh, the, the attackers have a, a motivation to continue to do fraud in this space. These problems are not only from crypto. They are not specific to crypto. It applies to all money transactions. We also have a new trend that is instant payments. And if you look at the classic credit card transactions, they are still a primary target of attackers. And the industry knows that third-party and JavaScript and running codes uh, and building up complex applications that, that run on the browser on, or on the mobile devices is a complex process. And if you look at the latest regulations from the PCI DSS, and the PCI DSS is a, is a standard that everyone that accepts credit card must comply with, it already mentions the need to monitor third parties and ensure the integrity of the JavaScript running in the browser. So what does this mean in the context of credit cards? It, in the future, every company that accepts a credit card payment must comply with the standard. And basically, our tooling will help these users and the merchants that are accepting the, the, these payments to provide a secure payment solution for their end users. And so we believe that what is happening now on credit cards will apply to all forms of payments, not only credit cards, but also instant payments, crypto, and, and other solutions that will exist in the future. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, the money exchange has continues to evolve and it's very different today than it was 15 years ago. I'm sure it'll look very different in 15 more years, but as long as as long as JavaScript's around, you guys will be doing great. So uh, I want to congratulate you once again for the last eight years. Uh, I, bootstrap to 43,000 is absolutely amazing success. I appreciate you taking the time today to help us understand some more about your business and and explain some of the intricacies of your markets. So thank you once again, Rui. I appreciate you, as I said, taking some time out of your day. Thank you for the opportunity, Steve. I really enjoy talking about these topics. I hope that I was clear and that I helped people understand a little bit what we do. Yep, I think so. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at CyberTheory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again. <laughs>